All right, welcome back to another episode of Credo. I am joined today by Michael Lofton, the host of the Reason and Theology Show, and I encourage you to go over on the YouTube and uh, check out his show, Reason and Theology. You'll often see it abbreviated R&T, uh, but if you search Reason and Theology, Michael Lofton, it'll come up. Go ahead, give that a listen. Go ahead and subscribe. It's a great show. I've been listening to Reason and Theology for, I think, a couple years now, Michael, and I've just I've learned so much. I appreciate uh, the the depth and the breadth in which you engage on all kinds of topics with all kinds of of guests, and I always just I always find it really interesting and, and intellectually uh, stimulating. So thanks for your work over there, and welcome to Credo, Michael. Me on. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've been wanting to do this for a while. Like I said, I've been a, a longtime listener of Reason and Theology, uh, and uh, I really admire. You know, I think one of the things I most admire is that you often have folks on who mm. disagree with you, and you'll have you know Orthodox theologians on to talk about something. Uh, I remember uh, several discussions that you've had, at least one, I think two, though, with David yeah. Bentley Hart uh, and engaging him on his uh, apocatastasis, his belief in the universal reconciliation of all things, um, which, uh, you know, he might sort of quibble with the label of universalism, but essentially it, it boils down to universalism. Uh, and I just really appreciate how you've been unafraid to have those conversations. You have some fellow panelists and, and sort of guest co-hosts of Reason and Theology who I think do great stuff. So again, listeners, go subscribe to Reason and Theology. Uh, Michael, tonight I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about your background as a Catholic, your journey into the church, and I heard a recent discussion on reason and theology about Traditionis Custodis, this uh, document uh, from Pope Francis that is uh, suppressing the traditional Latin Mass, at least to some degree, uh, and outlining some regulations for how it needs to be um, celebrated and practiced and permitted by various ordinaries in, in local dioceses. So um, we'll, we'll end up there, but I want to start here. You are a Catholic. Uh, I know that it's, it's been a it's been a rough and bumpy road for you, as it has been for many of us. I was not raised Catholic, and so I have my own pilgrimage. And my listeners have heard it before. I'll share it with you a little bit. Um, but I, I'd love to hear more about your theological background and how you ended up where you are today, as someone who's hosting a a popular Catholic theology podcast. Yeah, and it kind of happened. Well, it definitely happened providentially, but um, it it didn't necessarily happen. Uh, with, with a whole lot of intention behind it, it somewhat uh, just naturally and organically developed. But as far as my theological background, well, you know, I was um, <clears throat> raised in a Protestant household, but it wasn't really uh, something that I was big into, just had a little bit of exposure to Christianity. And really early on, my father and uh, the rest of my family, we moved to Israel and my father was doing some Christianary work there. So I had a very little uh, experience there. Um, but I mean, I, I don't really remember a whole lot of it. So, um, but I did have a little bit of exposure to Christianity in the Holy Land. Uh, but we returned at the age of four. And at that point, my parents divorced. So I just lived with my mother who converted to Judaism. And um uh, around the age of seven, she wanted to move us back to Israel, but this time for us to practice Judaism in the Holy Land. So I had a little bit of exposure to Judaism, but I mean, up until this point, none, none of these things were my personal convictions. They were just kind of things that I was exposed to. Um, practiced it for a few years nominally uh, in Israel, but then returned to the United States at the age of 12 and moved in with my father. And that's when I really started 
to get a better exposure to Christianity and to take things a little bit more seriously. At the age of 12, I was baptized. I, I chose to be baptized and uh, was baptized in a non, uh, well, a Trinitarian non-denominational uh, group that was somewhat charismatic too. So that was really my main exposure to Christianity was this charismatic, non-denominational, yet Trinitarian uh, perspective. And, you know, as most people tend to do, uh, get into my teens and high school days and all that, and I go astray. And um, around 20, I'm sorry, 19, I moved to New York and uh Around the age of 21, 22 in New York, I had um, some pretty rough experiences that made me want to consider the meaning of life and consider uh, my faith more deeply. And somebody gave me a Bible and I decided to read it. So I read it cover to cover in a little less than 30 days. And after that experience, I was really changed. My, my life was no longer just this nominal Christian uh, perspective, but I, I began to take it seriously and believe what I had read in scripture. And um, I moved back from New York to Louisiana. It was a lot easier to live here than in New York. So um, moved back to Louisiana and uh, ended up having my daughter and I had to ask the question, okay, well, do I have her baptized or not? So I had to start studying the issue of infant baptism. And that eventually led me from kind of more of a Baptist way of thinking to a more Presbyterian and Reformed way of thinking. And among the Presbyterians, there's really this emphasis of, of church history. So I started studying church history and uh, looking into the church fathers. And I'd read all of the apostolic fathers and quite a few of the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers and started to dive into even secondary source, patristic sources, but, but especially primary sources. And I realized, okay, I think I might be in the wrong church just because I'm just seeing too much discontinuity here, especially when it right, comes to right. ecclesiology. So as far as my theological background, at this point, I start to consider Catholicism and orthodoxy. And in many ways, Catholicism was harder for me to consider because um, I'd been given some pretty anti-Catholic material uh, way back. Oh, so totally. Yeah. I, I, I was definitely, uh, opposed to Catholicism on a level that I wasn't opposed to orthodoxy, but I, I wanted, well, because orthodoxy or orthodoxy is yeah. sort of mysterious, right? And, and you can write it off as mystical and ancient. Um, and it's because it's not well known, uh, it is not mm. well understood and therefore it's not, it's not frequently attacked, you know, whereas Catholicism is sort of the All boogeyman right. to, uh, to many, Protestant expressions of Christianity, many of many of which sort of predominate in the American South, uh, and so I can imagine if you're growing yeah. up in the American South and you're sort of steeped in the non-denominational, um, you know, uh, milieu, you'll definitely grow up with a lot of that. I mean, I didn't grow up in the American South. Uh, I did grow up in a family whose parents were they came to Christ mm -hmm. as Baptists, and and that was there. You know, the the, the anti-Catholic undertones were certainly there. Yeah, definitely in this area, uh, it's mostly Baptists and Charismatics. 
Um, but there is for sure a whole lot of misunderstandings of Catholicism and there, there is some anti-Catholic stuff as well. So I was exposed to all that. And so I found it easier to consider orthodoxy, but I really wanted to have all cards on the table. So I, I considered both, but yeah. at the end of the day, I just could not, uh, find an objective answer to what's an ecumenical council. And, you know, how do we really identify orthodoxy versus heresy? Um, in orthodoxy, there is not really, in my opinion, an objective answer to that. Uh, but in Catholicism, I did find an objective answer. Uh, so I, I ended up converted to, converting to Catholicism back in 2012. And um, I was, uh, see, Catholic for about five years. But during that time, I was extremely scandalized by all kinds of things that were going on in the church, not only universal, uh, this is um, especially towards the end there, uh, more Snatitia was released, um, but also things that were going on locally that were really scandalizing me. So for, uh, for a time, I started to say, you know what, maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe I need to consider orthodoxy again. So I did sure, that. Um, and I started to consider orthodoxy and uh, gave it a little while and um, ended up going to orthodoxy. And um, so I was uh, Eastern Orthodox for about three years, but I, I just, the longer I was there, the more I realized that um, though I can escape some of the uh, scandals and some of the problems that I experienced on a local level, I just couldn't shake the fact that I can't square this thing historically and theologically. Um, and the more I look to it, the more it just seems that uh, Catholicism objectively checks out and ultimately I have to make my decisions based on what is objectively true, not my personal experiences or feelings or things like that. And I continued to right. have this, um, reminder that would constantly come to me from, uh, having read Lumen Gentium that tells you, you know, you can't be saved if you refuse to enter the church or remain within it. And, and that last part or remain within it constantly right, right, yeah. went through my head because I was, yeah. you know, having to concede that it, it sure does seem to be that the, um, the uh, the truth objectively is with the Catholics, and and I see that, and yet I'm not in full communion with Catholicism uh, any longer. So um, I was reconciled to the church uh, in in 2019, and uh, it really ended up putting to rest the. Uh, struggles that I had experienced up into that time, a lot of the doubts that I had experienced and really helped solidify my faith so that now that I see some of the things that are going on in the church, my faith isn't shaken anymore. And I, I have solid and objective reasons for remaining Catholic in spite of some of the things that I see going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by your story there, and uh, I hear in it echoes of a, a fellow Louisiana native of yours, uh, who you probably know who I'm talking about, Rod uh, Dreyer. Uh, uh, Rod, of course, was Catholic um, as recently as the early 2000s, and he has a story of, um, you know, I think being sort of, being sort of spiritually jarred by the, the September 11th attacks when he was working as a journalist in New York. Uh, but then the, the sexual yeah. abuse scandals broke the following year and then continue to break right. and break and break and they're still breaking. Um, and he just said, this was the, this was the breaking point. So he was sort of spiritually reawakened by various events in the early two thousands and then driven to mm -hmm. orthodoxy 
in the in the early two thousands, and so certainly a different a different uh, issue than what you raise uh, in some at least in degree, uh, if not in kind. Uh, but also, um, but but also, I think similar in the sense that he was Catholic. He found himself in the fullness of communion, but then somehow he became convinced that the Catholic Church did not hold the fullness of truth because of its because of its praxis. Mm-hmm. So, in his in my understanding of his journey, uh, there's there's no sort of dogmatic or doctrinal mm-hmm. issues he has. It's all about practice. It's about how the bishops carry their authority and implement their authority. It's how priests abuse their authority routinely, et cetera. Um, and so I don't know if you have any, I'm not sure. asking you to comment on uh, Rod Dreher's journey, but, uh, you're, you're probably yeah. familiar with him. And, um, I don't know, as someone who has been Catholic, gone to orthodoxy and then mm-hmm. come back, um, what are some of the things that motivated that return journey? Because I understand mm-hmm. leaving Catholicism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, and, and I'm a convert as well. I grew up, um, well, like I said, my parents came to Christ as Baptists. By the time I was sort of of age, I was, um, in the Anglican Church, first Episcopal, and then 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 when the Episcopal Church in America sort of crumbled, an Anglican, you know, continuing Anglican Church, um, and you know, when I became Catholic, certainly authority had a lot of attraction, and it was easy to think um, Catholicism has all the answers, and and you know, I'll never have I'll never have a quibble with another sure. <laughs> pastor or homiletic for as long no. as I live. Obviously, that's a uh, that's a that's a fantasy. And you you know, if you don't recognize that when you do become Catholic, you realize it really soon after you become Catholic, and um, and so I think it's, it's understandable to see why someone might flee to orthodoxy, mm-hmm. but then once you're there, what are some of the things that in your case brought you back? You know, was there a single dogmatic teaching that you were really compelled by on the Catholic side? Um, was it your study of ecclesiology? And I've said before, ecclesiology is soteriology and is Christology, right? It, it all, it all is linked together. So was it sort mm-hmm. of that, um, or was it, was it, you know, dissatisfaction with the Orthodox side of things and maybe seeing some of the same issues of practice that you might've found on the Catholic side and realizing that these problems exist everywhere and they're not a reason to leave the Catholic church. So maybe something entirely different, but what were, what were some of your motivating factors coming well, it back? It wasn't an issue of being dissatisfied, you know, with, with Orthodoxy or just being scandalized. Although I, I had noticed some of the things that I experienced in Catholicism I was experiencing in Orthodoxy. And that, that made me realize yeah. that, okay, I need to make a decision here based on objective truth, not experience and subjective things. Right. But, but before I dive into that, I'll just say that, you know, when I was from, again, 2012 to 2017, uh, struggling to remain Catholic, I believed it. I, I saw Catholicism checking out objectively. But, I mean, let, let's say that you objectively believe the Catholics have the truth, but your priest is uh, attacking your family by telling your wife that he, he, she she should divorce you because uh, you maintain um, the Catholic faith. Let, let's say your wife wants to contracept and and you say, no, I, I can't do that. Um, we, we can't allow that in our marriage. And she goes to the priest and the priest says, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. You should be able to contracept. You need to divorce this guy. He's, he's old school. You, you know, he didn't get... He, he, he needs to get with the times. We don't believe that anymore. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you uh, permission to go ahead and divorce the guy. There's nothing wrong with it. You have my blessing. And you start experiencing personal attacks against your family and scandals like that. And it's back to back to back. It's not just one issue. It's just nonstop issues. You start to ask the question, well, maybe, maybe my judgment in what is objectively true is off here. You know, you know, at some point right. you start yeah, totally. to ask the question, well, 
is this God's way of telling me that I've made the wrong mistake? Right. After yeah. a while, you're going to, you're going to have to just say, you know what? Um, maybe I thought this was objectively true, but these subjective experiences are making it painfully obvious that I just can't be a Catholic and that I need to go elsewhere. And so that's what happened to me. Um, just having experienced many of those different things like what I just described there, after a while you just become too fatigued and you say, maybe I shouldn't trust my intellect here and what is objectively true. I think God is telling me I need to go elsewhere. Yeah, well, and let me interject mm -hmm. here real quick because uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it, it was, it is the case, it was the case that when I became Catholic, uh, people would say to me, well, what about this? What about that? And invariably, well, not invariably, most of the time, these were issues of praxis, not mm -hmm. of dogma, right? There are some instances where, where they would say like, well, what about the Immaculate Conception? Like, why do you believe that, right? And then, and then we can have a reasoned discussion about, about why I believe in the Immaculate Conception. More often it's, well, what about this bishop who said this? What about the Pope who said this, et cetera? And so these are issues of, of, you know, individual people. These are issues of praxis. These are issues of like priests not being faithful to what they're supposed to do, to their you know, vows of celibacy, et cetera. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, that's really just, that's about practice. That's mm -hmm. not about doctrine, right? It, that's, that's not, that's not a dogmatic issue. That's a bad priest. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a bad apple in the barrel. Uh, but at a certain point, right? Like if it walks like <laughs> yeah. a duck, if it talks like a duck, right? So at a certain point, like when all these things are happening and everyone is really, really bad, you have to step back yeah. and say, wait, hold on. Is this really what I believe it to be? And so I totally yeah, understand your your uh, at a your thinking. At a certain point, what is objectively true kind of runs out of gas, and you have to say maybe my subjective experience is a cheat sheet to show me what is objectively true. I, I might not be able to tell you on paper how orthodoxy, for example, is objectively true, but my experience is showing me as a quick cheat sheet that maybe the truth is there. You, you start to get to that point after you become extremely scandalized and, and your your family is attacked and falling apart and, and you're just having a really um, rough experience, you know, after totally. years of that. You start to question things. So that's effectively what happened with me. Um, but, you know, when some of those emotions aren't as raw anymore and they, they kind of start to fade away and you can think of things a little bit more objectively with without a lot of hurt, um, you, you have to come back to the question, though, which church did Christ establish? And that's an objective question, right? Uh, that, that's not necessarily something that you determine through subjective experience. That is an objective question. Which church did Christ actually establish? Um, although there are some who try to approach it subjectively and say, well, my experience tells me that this is the church Christ established, but Mormons can say that, Jehovah's Witnesses can say that, blah, blah, blah. That's not going to settle anything when it comes to the differences between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. So I need an objective answer. Which church did Christ established? And that's the church that I need to be a part of, regardless of the experiences that I have. And I, you know, I got to the point that I could start to consider those questions again objectively without a lot of that hurt uh, being present and, and somewhat overriding my decision. 
And the more I looked into it, the more the answer just seems to confirm the Catholic Church. So it was effectively ecclesiology questions, magisterial questions, uh, objective truth claims, things like that, that brought me back to uh, consider Catholicism once again. And continuing to uh, work through that, I was reconciled to Rome for that reason. Not because I, I have some wonderful personal uh, experience with the Catholic Church, uh, not because it makes me feel really nice, not because I just I like the particular style of the Mass that uh, my, my church has locally, but because I believe this is the church that Christ established. And if I were to go elsewhere, there is an imperfection and there, and that imperfection reflects my relationship with Christ. If I go elsewhere, there's a certain sense in which I lack unity with Christ himself. Um, so I was reconciled to the church back in 2019, and um, I continue to study ecclesiology, and especially the magisterium, and it continues to confirm my, my original decision. And actually, you're reminding me that I forgot to mention that part of your biography, that you're working on a THD uh, with the focus on magisterial studies. So, um, Michael, maybe to sort of wrap, wrap up your journey here. To someone who's listening to this and and nodding along with you and saying, this has also been my experience and I'm thinking about leaving the church or this is why I haven't joined the Catholic church. Um, what are some resources that you might recommend to them? You know, a book or two to pick up to explore this question or answer this question of did Jesus Christ found the Catholic church? Yeah, there's not one particular one that I would recommend. I would recommend reading the ecumenical councils themselves. You can find their acts, of course, translated by Father Richard Price, whom I'm actually going to have on the show, um, I want to say in a week oh, or nice. so. And and you can read oh, the council for yourself, you know, the, the acts. And you'll see the papal claims being made there, openly proclaimed at the ecumenical councils and implicitly accepted by uh, the fathers of some of these councils, like the Sixth Council or the Seventh Council or at Ephesus or Chalcedon. So um, the those councils in particular, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople II, Constantinople III, and Nicaea II, you're going to see the papal claims being openly made there, and they're incompatible with Eastern Orthodoxy. And they are the seed form of Vatican I's claims to the papacy. Uh, not only the indefectibility um, of Rome, its infallibility, but also um, that it is an uh, institution of divine origin. So it's not transferable to another seed like Constantinople or Moscow or something like that but that it will uh, remain in the Sea of Rome unto the end, as Agatha puts it. So, so I, I would recommend just reading the councils themselves, especially the Acts, and you can find them translated by Father Richard Price. That will get you okay. really far down the line. Um, that definitely helped me. Um, but also studying the magisterium itself and asking questions like, okay, well, Ultimately, if I'm going to, um, you know, maintain the faith that was uh, given to us by the saints, I have to be able to judge what is orthodox and what is heretical. And in order to do that, you're going to have to have an objective way to identify the teaching authority of the church, the magisterium. And in orthodoxy, I haven't found an objective answer to where is this teaching authority? How, how do you determine when it's operative? 
they, they generally admit that they are subjective. There's no objective way, for example, to identify an ecumenical council and to identify what is orthodox and uh, what is heretical. These are things that you would subjectively have to determine um, by the uh, infusion of the Holy Spirit who's given to you. And I would say that that doesn't really give me objective truth. That's a subjective claim and ultimately isn't different than what Protestants are offering me. Whereas Catholicism does have an objective answer to identify what the magisterium is, what is orthodox, what is heretical. You might not agree with it. You might not think that it was uh, something that's established by Christ, but you have to admit Catholics at least do have objective answers to these things. And I would say that gets you pretty far down the road, too, when you study that. Yeah, sounds good. Well, let's pull that thread a little bit, Michael, and talk about this in the context of traditionis custodis. Um, so the reason I, I originally reached out to you to have you on the show is because, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I was listening to your episode or your show, I don't know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, um, after traditionis custodis was published. I guess it had to be three weeks ago, just given the timeline. So, um, and you were, you were doing a sort of reaction show to the reactions of traditionis custodis, and you were reading these various, um, pretty prominent Catholic voices, uh, particularly in the sort of, um, trad mm -hmm. sphere. And, uh, and, and many of these voices were just simply ap mm -hmm. apoplectic about what had happened. Um, and I think your takes were really interesting because you are someone, as you've just outlined, who came to Catholicism, you know, being attracted by the, the authority who left Catholicism in pursuit of truth and was dissatisfied with the the best alternative answer in orthodoxy and then came back. So you've already sort of worked through these questions and you, yeah. you'd even said that. I remember in particular, um, you were reading one tweet from someone who shall be unnamed uh, on this 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 show. Um, and he had said, you know, look, I, I, you know, I found that a website helping people come to Catholicism when I became Catholic several years ago. And at the time, authority was our rallying cry. Like, like this was our refuge. You know, it was flee to it was flee to Rome because we they, because Rome has the authority and will not ever err. And then he basically said, like, we don't have that rallying cry mm -hmm. anymore. And uh, and I thought that was interesting because uh, I see that in some of my friends. Um, I've even felt that impulse in myself. I think in in the past, I think I've sort of worked through it um, in, in a much better way now. But certainly when I first converted, that was sort of that was my thought process as well. Um, and so I think I'm sort of more like you now and that I've arrived in a, in a different place, um, and, and with a, with a, a healthier and more correct understanding of how the church's authority happens in practice. But, uh, what you said on that podcast was, um, that look, these reactions are all incorrect, but they're also yeah. understandable be, because this was your position as well. I just said it was my, it was, you know, my position as well, at least something like it. Uh, and now with the benefit of hindsight, you understand, you have a better understanding of how the authority of the church yeah. works. So Let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, Traditionis Custodis, Pope Francis publishes mm -hmm. this article uh, or this this um, this apostolic letter, uh, essentially suppressing the Latin Mass. Not entirely, not not wholly, but but largely, right? And so uh, so priests that celebrate it now have to get permission from their local ordinary, their bishop, to continue doing so. Priests that are currently in formation or, or seminarians in formation who will become priests and who would like to celebrate it, or priests now who don't celebrate it but would like to start have to petition their bishop for permission to do so. That bishop then has to consult the Vatican to grant that permission, grant that faculty. Um, uh, other things too, the, uh, the, you know, there's, there should be a place made available by the bishop for, um, for those who want the traditional Latin mass, but it should not be at a parish. It should be at some sort of, you know, chapel um, set up, et cetera. And so, so a lot of things that are 
are being put in place to suppress the the uh, Latin Mass. And viewers of my show uh, or listeners of my show might remember my conversation with Larry Chap in the aftermath of this. And you know, the, I think Larry's uh, Larry's points were good um, uh, in saying that you know, there's maybe some reason for this, right? There are some. There are certainly some trads who are um, being relatively schismatic or being very divisive in in doing this and proclaiming that the traditional Latin Mass is the only option. Um, rather than the extraordinary form, et cetera. And, and so there's certainly some nuance there. But the fundamental thing that it comes down to is, um, you know, can the Pope uh, can can the Pope do this and sort of um, can can our hermeneutic of authority, can our understanding of the church's authority not completely collapse and crumble? Yeah. Um, and so that's a big question, but I'll sort of I'll sort of throw that to you now and and, and leave you to answer that because that's that's essentially what the people that you were reacting to uh, in that podcast. Um, that's what they were saying, right? Like our our entire understanding, our entire understanding of the superstructure of the Catholic Church has crumbled. It was all built on a false edifice because the motu proprio was published. And like to me, that sounds relatively absurd. Uh, and I think you know you're kind of in that spot too. But I also, but I do like you. I understand mm-hmm. where that impulse is coming yeah. from. So what do you think? I about think that? that what has happened is many Catholics have taken the position that unless something has been taught ex cathedra, that the Holy Spirit is not present at all. In other words, only mm-hmm. those things that are taught ex cathedra have some, you know, the the Holy Spirit working uh, behind them and protect them from error. And everything else is just a free for all. The Holy Spirit is not there and the Pope can just make mistakes all over the place. Well, and of course, then if the Holy Spirit's not there, it's not, not only is it a free for all, but if the Holy Spirit's not there, then it's really the realm of the devil. And so everything that's not ex cathedra is, uh, is, is not for our edification, but possibly for our destruction. They would, they would then logically have to say that pretty much everything else is open for, um, you know, for the smoke, the of, smoke Satan. of Satan, for decisions that are entirely against the church, against its nature, that right. are counterintuitive, that are harmful, that are demonic, that are sinful. You would have to, if, if you're going to say that there's either ex cathedra or there's pretty much no work of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to say that, well, then everything that's not ex cathedra could be the work of the devil. The Pope could be uh, just completely raping the church and destroying it, pillaging it. Um, and as long as he doesn't utter a heresy ex cathedra, it's possible mm-hmm. that the Pope could just completely be against the church. I think that's the position that a lot of people are experiencing right now. And I'm going to say, no, we can't take that position. And one of the, and I think that I've already come to that point because I've had to deal with Eastern Orthodoxy and some of their claims that are pretty similar to these, uh, to this position that some traditionalists find themselves in. And so that's what I mean by I've already had to work through these issues to say that, no, that's not the case. It's not that unless it's ex cathedra, the Holy Spirit's nowhere present. I would say this. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is an absolute guarantee of infallibility for that which is ex cathedra on part of the Pope. We grant that. Uh, But something that is shy of ex cathedra, it's not utterly devoid of the Holy Spirit. I would argue the Catholic Catholic faith teaches that there is still a general protection of the Holy Spirit. 
even to non-ex-cathedral, non-definitive papal teachings. There's still a general protection of the Holy Spirit. At the very least, there's still a safety there uh, insofar as, well, maybe maybe what the Pope says could be reformed, but it's not going to be uh, utterly devastating and and destroying to soul destroying to the church in other words there's still a general protection there of the holy spirit and and that is the position not only that you could see uh uttered by agatha at the sixth council that that seems to be his view uh but it seems to be the view that uh, continues to be reiterated by the magisterium itself, uh, not only in the First Vatican Council, but especially the Second Vatican Council and its document, Lumen Gentium, paragraph 25 right. specifically, right. Um, and then other magisterial uh, documents as well. And, and even to the point that you can see something like Donum Veritatis, which is a document uh, that is also magisterial, by the way, that is especially for the theologian. It's on the vocation of the theologian. And it notes there in paragraph 24.3, it notes how though the church and the papacy and the magisterium could err in particular individual matters of prudence, so we're not talking about theology here, doctrine of faith and morals. We're actually just talking about yeah. pr prudential decisions. Though it can mm -hmm. make individual mistakes here and there, it cannot habitually err in matters right. of prudence. And why is that? Because of the Holy Spirit. So even in matters of prudence, there is a habitual protection of the Holy Spirit Granted that there could be individual instances here and there that could be uh, reformed, but for the most part, they're protected. So if, if there's that much protection by the Holy Spirit uh, to the point that the church couldn't habitually err in matters of prudence, how much more protection do you think that there is for non-definitive, non-ex-cathedral teachings on matters of faith and morals? Well, clearly there's going to be a lot mm -hmm. of protection there. So that's why I speak of a general protection. How does this tie into things like traditionis custodis? Well, the reaction that I was seeing by a lot of people was that, you know, this pope is just basically raping the church and destroying it and and doing all kinds of things that's harmful. And, and he's, willfully he's willfully malicious. malicious. Yeah. And I would I would say, OK, though I might say there are some aspects of this prudentially that might be uh, questionable. I don't think that Pope Francis is just completely devoid of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. I don't think that he's just this agent of Satan, con you know, working contrary to the church. And, um, and, and, well, he can do that as long as it's not something that he teaches ex cathedra. I, I just don't see that from the text of the magisterium that I observe. And so I think Traditionis Custodis really brought that difference out. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and, and it it's um it's a shame to see so many people adopting this position that you hold, right? That the ex cathedra statements are the only ones that really matter, the only ones that have the the uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit in any way reflected in them. Um, because then, you know, go going back to the the final comment that you made about traditionis custodis. I mean, if you have this if you have this position that Francis is you know basically an agent of Satan or a a a pawn or just a a, a secret modernist who is trying to destroy the church from within, um, you, you either end up in this very sort of incoherent position where the Pope doesn't really have the protection of the Holy Spirit in any capacity mm -hmm. except what you say, which is when he makes an ex statement, or 
this isn't really mm-hmm. the Pope, right? And so then you then then you're like you're creeping towards this this seat of Vicantus position that is obviously schismatic and is obviously really dangerous. Um, and sadly, I think um, that's just not that's not just a hypothetical anymore. Um, I'm not going to name names. We've seen uh, people, you know, prominent voices in the Catholic online world kind of creep that direction over the past few years during the Francis Pontificate, precisely because of their flawed understanding of the magisterium and and really i think ultimately their lack of faith in the guidance of the holy spirit which is troubling yeah yeah and it, it not only lends itself to set of concepts of there but also eastern orthodoxy because they're going to claim that okay well maybe your pope hasn't contradicted himself in something ex cathedra maybe he hasn't taught heresy dogmatically ex cathedra but mm-hmm. according to your standards of how you define it in vatican one uh but what they'll say is but he makes all kinds of mistakes all over the place in admitting the filioque it's orthodoxy admitting the filioque into the creed uh, changing the um, matter of the Eucharist from uh, leaven to unleavened bread, and uh, they'll they'll start to go into all of those stereotypical problems that they uh, level against the papacy, and and so this idea that well, unless it's ex cathedra, uh, it's just a free for all. It, it fits really well with the Orthodox who are going to say that okay, well maybe your Pope hasn't contradicted himself when it comes to things that are ex cathedra but he has devastated the church but he has uh lent himself to heresy for uh over a thousand years but he has been uh raping and destroying the church and they they'll go into all of their talking points and so it fits in really well with eastern orthodox which is why i say that um some of these reactions that some traditionalists have they're ripe for the picking they're, they're ripe for the picking when it comes to Eastern Orthodoxy, but I'd already dealt with those claims and dealt with those issues, um, having been Eastern Orthodox and, and making my way back to Catholicism so that when I encounter a document like Traditionis Custodis, my faith isn't shaken like so many other people, unlike so many other people whose faith is shaken because they have a misunderstanding of ecclesiology and the role of the papacy. So what is your understanding of, you know, Take traditionos mm-hmm. sodas, for example, right? Uh, there's, you know, there's the surface level understanding and sort of your interpretation of what exactly Francis means by it and how to celebrate the Latin mass and what powers the local mm-hmm. ordinary has and all that. But I, I don't mean that. I, I don't mean like, how do you interpret it as a canon lawyer? I mean, um, you know, what is your, on, on a faith level, what is your Michael Lofton's reaction to it? I mean, um, to me, it doesn't make me question uh, doesn't make me question, is Francis the Pope? It doesn't make me question, is the Catholic Church really yes. the Catholic Church? I just sort of I don't know, put my head in my hands. and was like, oh man, <laughs> this is just, I like, I, I don't know if this is super helpful, yeah. right? Um, but but that, that was me. But what's your reaction? Yeah, like, well, like you, it doesn't make me question my faith or the role of the papacy or anything like that. Um, but I, I kind of have a similar response that, that you do. Was this really necessary? Was this really helpful? I mean, what he's trying to do is, is praiseworthy as far as what his intentions are. And his intention is to stamp out a certain schismatic, schismatic tendency among some traditional Catholics. Okay, I get that. But first, before... Before we do that, can we first stamp out the schismatic tendency of the numerous liberal Catholics? Uh, yes. Oh we? my goodness. Well, th- this is what Larry, Larry and I talked about this, right? Uh, in mm-hmm. our conversation, and you know, uh, Francis had, um, I think, two lines in which he sort of mentioned 
uh, abuses at the Novus Ordo, and the rest of the document was all about <laughs> right, is, yeah. TLMs or schismatic attitudes. I'm like, no, let's yeah, let's focus on I, both I, of those I, things, right? Schismatic attitudes at the TLM yeah. are bad, and liturgical abuses at the Novus Ordo are also right, bad. I, I would kind of, you know, do a reverse of the focus that he has, and 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 I would yeah, put a little yeah. less focus on uh, the schismatic tendencies of some traditionalists and maybe some abuses that might occur there, and the many more abuses that would occur among uh, people who celebrate the Novus Ordo and some of the schismatic mentalities you'll find there among liberals. I would um, I would address that first, and then we'll have more credibility to deal with some of the problematic aspects among some yeah. traditionalists. Cause it's not all traditionalists. We're, we're talking about some no, definitely not. here. I yeah. think it's a minority. Really. Um, although they're becoming pretty loud uh, online in my opinion. But well, well, that's, that's the problem with online stuff, yeah. right? Like you go on Twitter, right. And you're like, Oh wow. Yeah. All of America cares this much about, I don't know this, uh, this like African warlord that no one in America has actually heard of, except if you're right. on Twitter. Right. So uh, that's the problem with social media interactions and taking them as representatives. So that was so. one of my concerns is, is how well will this be received when we have it first address the liberals and their schismatic tendencies and abuses? How well will this really be received? Probably not very well. Uh, so it's probably not going to be very effective in accomplishing the end that it's you know supposed to accomplish because we, we need to get our priorities uh, straight here and deal with that issue first before we can deal with this one. So that's one of the... Um, uh, I guess concerns that I would have with it. And then number two, it does seem to be, um, it, it seems to be overly, uh, well, there, let me put it this way. There's some aspects to it that aren't necessary to accomplish the end that he wants to bring about. I don't think that you have to restrict the uh, traditional Latin mass to the extent that he does to bring about an orthodoxy among some traditional Catholics. In other words, if there are some traditional Catholics that are uh, exhibiting a schismatic mentality, was this the necessary response? No. What you could do is make them sign a profession of faith. Instead of restricting the traditional Latin mass to the extent that he did, couldn't you just make them sign a, a profession of faith and an affirmation of the Second Vatican Council and the living magisterium and his pontificate? Yes. So was it really necessary to go to this extent? Probably not. So I, I think it was unmeasured in some ways, um, overly, you know, overly harsh. And then um, my my bigger or another concern would be, um, <clears throat> I think that a lot of people are not going to perceive this in the right way. They're going to think that this is a, an attack on the Latin mass itself on the traditions of the church. So I think that he could have done yeah. more to make it clear that that wasn't the case. Um, but then again, one of the things that he's trying to do in there more than just address a schismatic mentality among some traditionalists is eventually bring it, the church to the point that it only has one form of the Roman rite and that the traditional Latin mass mm. is no longer another form of the Roman rite, that the only form right. would be right. the current form uh, under the missile of Paul VI. Believe it or not, I'm actually in favor of that. Um, uh, as long as we are doing the missile of Paul VI correctly and... <laughs> 
As long as you're following, uh, as long the, rubrics, as we're following you mean? the rubrics, and maybe we need to reform some aspects to it objectively. I think we need to beef up yeah. some of the prayers. I mean, think we need to take out some of the options. I would take out the other Eucharistic uh, prayers and require Eucharistic prayer number one, which is the Roman canon. Um, so there, there are yep. some things I would actually do to alter the Missal of Paul the Six objectively, but that could easily be done. But not only that, but then celebrate it properly. Make sure it's done ad orientum. Incorporate more Latin. Yep. Incorporate more Gregorian chant. Um, if you're doing all of those things, it's going to be almost indistinguishable from the traditional Latin mass. The, yeah. v- the vast majority of people would not be able to distinguish the Novus Ordo celebrated properly from the traditional Latin mass, the Missal of Paul, um, I'm sorry, John the 23rd, the Missal of 62. They wouldn't be able to distinguish them if they're done right. But if they're if the Novus Ordo isn't being done right, and you have all of these variations, you're going to start to see more of a disconnect and discontinuity. So I'm in favor of what he's trying to do by um, bringing it back to the point that we have only one form to the Roman Rite, because I don't think it's a good idea that there is this divided two forms to one Roman Rite. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and notice I'm saying Roman right here and not Latin right, because there's different expressions of the Latin right, but there, there should be only one form of the Roman right. Um, so it yeah. makes more sense to do what he's doing, but there's so much more that he needs to prepare. There's so much groundwork that has to be done before we can even get to that point. Um, right, so right. Th- I guess those are some of the criticisms that I would have with Traditionis Custodis is it doesn't do enough. And then also lastly, and I, and I heard Dr. Uh, Chap say the exact same thing. So I know he agreed with it. Uh, I think it was on your show. No, no, it wasn't on your show. Because uh, I think you did your show with him like six months ago. Um, but it, No, it was, uh, we did one like Okay, so that ago. must have been the one that I was listening TCU. to. Because I thought I heard him agree with me on the point where he says that um, he doesn't do and he doesn't really put any teeth behind correcting the abuses in the Novus Ordo that are mentioned in the yes. traditional yes. system. We talked about that at it's length. It's nice yes. to say that, 100%. yeah, those things are condemned in the Novus Ordo. Right. But until you actually do something about them and put teeth behind this, those are empty words. You just simply yeah. saying, hey, um, abuses in the Novus Ordo shouldn't take place. That's not going to do anything. People who are mm-hmm. abusing the liturgy in the Novus Ordo, how's that going to change them? If, if they're already committing right. abuse is that's not going to mean anything to them. Pope Francis simply condemning it in the document. Totally. What will yeah. change it is you put teeth behind it and say you're going to be suspended or you're going to be Yeah, there are canonical penalties when you um, yeah when you don't follow the germ, the, right. the general instructions of the Roman Missal, when you don't follow it, you're going to be penalized. That's when... Like you're, you're a priest. This is yeah. your job. Celebrate exactly. the Mass properly for crying and, out loud. And so if he had yeah. done that, I, I would be a little bit more receptive to some of the things. So in other words, the... Totally. The Maybe that one's coming, Michael. Maybe, <laughs> the, maybe that document's coming. The goal coming. of what he's trying to do, I get it, but I think that some of it yeah. was unnecessary to accomplish it. And also he doesn't put enough teeth behind some of the things that he's trying to accomplishing. And he doesn't prepare enough groundwork to really bring about what he's trying to bring about. That's yeah. my yeah. opinion on Traditionis Casillas. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, maybe to wrap, Michael, um, you know, let's let's end with this. Uh, end on a sort of what can we do? What can we do? Note, uh, and I like to to do this. And I, when I whenever I have my monthly conversation with Larry Chap, uh, I like to sort of end on this. And we circle back to the universal call to holiness a lot, um, and how it's so easy to be ma- to be mad online. It's so easy to have sort of a armchair quarterback mm-hmm. opinions. Um, 
what's a lot harder is to actually be holy and to do what the church calls us to do. Um, and so, you know, my, my very simple one on this show is we need to pray for mm-hmm. the pontiff. We need to pray. We need to pray for a strengthening of the a strengthening of those graces of the Holy Spirit that you've already talked about, mm-hmm. Michael. Um, you know, there we can we can pick apart um, many of m- many of the things that he does, the things that he says, the things that he writes. Um, and some of those some of those criticisms may 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 very well be spot on, but that doesn't mean that we should refrain from praying for him. In fact, it means the very opposite that we need to be praying for a strengthening of the grace of the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit um, in his pontificate because he is, after all, the mm-hmm. vicar of Christ. Uh, that is. One of his titles, he is the the pontiff. He is the head of the the church. He is the successor of Peter, um, and he needs our prayers uh, and all that. So that's that's my my bit of a bit of advice to sort of end on here. Um, you know, if we hold to the belief and authority that we do as Orthodox mm-hmm. Catholics, uh, lo- lowercase O, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, then then we need to take it seriously and put our money where our mouth is. Right? We need it. We need to put teeth behind that belief and pray for the continued. Um, grace of the Holy Spirit for all those in authority and most especially for the successor of Peter. Uh, but what would you add to that? In addition to that, um, uh, be, become informed about your faith when it comes to the role of the papacy and mm. what really are, what is the extent to which it could err? Because I think it's a lot more limited than most people realize. Um, and when, and when you realize that you begin to interpret things a little bit differently, also don't, you know, pay attention to the majority of the nonsense that you're going to encounter, uh, from radical traditionalists. A lot of it is misinformation. Um, and, and again, lends itself to other communions. So maybe turn that, uh, some of that stuff off and, um, uh, focus more on prayer. That doesn't mean to turn a blind eye to the issues in the church. You Mm -hmm. do need to be informed, but I do think that a person who has, um, uh, a, a very well if if that's what their diet largely consists of reading that kind of stuff online it's eventually going to scandalize you so turn some of that stuff off and you'll notice how your perception of these events uh begin to change but also something that bishop schneider told me years ago i wrote to him a while back and I, i've had him on the show but this was prior to that I wrote to him a while back for some spiritual advice because I was really struggling with how do I remain Catholic? I'm just going through too much and and I'm really scandalized. And there was something that he said that actually um, really helped. And I began to think about it a lot uh, when when I had uh, gone to orthodoxy and was considering coming back to Catholicism. And that was uh, be faithful to your baptism. Right. I mean, there there might be other people in the church who are not faithful to their baptism and they're not being faithful to their vocation as ministers, uh, ministers and shepherds. But you need to be faithful to your baptism and what you're called to. And I think that if we're focused more on those things and we have a better and more informed faith, we're going to be less shaken whenever we come across some of this stuff online. Good advice, uh, wise words from you and from uh, Bishop Schneider there. So thanks for uh, thanks for sharing yeah. that. Um, we will end there, Michael. But I will once again remind my listeners and viewers to go check out Michael's show. If you are a podcast person, there's a podcast feed, Reason and Theology. Uh, the podcast art, I think, is just RT. If I, it's like it's a uh, white letters on a black yes. background. I think RT Reason and Theology show. And then YouTube, just uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, just uh, go to the search bar Reason and Theology show with Michael Lofton. Uh, hit a subscribe there um, and go listen to what he and his friends have to say because it's it's all good stuff. Uh, for my part, I'd be happy to um, you know con- connect you if you have questions about something we've said. I'd be happy to try to answer, or if there are questions for Michael, we'd be happy to pass those along to him. Uh, so reach out to me, Zach Z A C at Creedal Podcast 
www.thecoachmentor.com. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for having you on. Or thanks so much yeah, for coming on. It was great to you. have you on. I appreciate yeah, the time. Thank you for having me. For sure. And, you know, I, I like to uh, say to my my fellow yeomen in the faith here who are, are trying to just be faithful and be faithful for baptism. Thanks for thanks for your work and thanks for uh, your work of evangelization and catechesis because it's all very important. And uh, I know you've got a, a pretty sizable audience and just I, I really appreciate the work you're doing over there at, at the Reason Theology thank Show. Thank you. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, to my listeners, God bless you. Until next time, have a great week.